I tried to fix the cord. It didn't work. It's very strange hearing you this much in my ear. <laughs> it's, I'm in your head. <laughs> um, I don't remember, of course, who started last time. Do you have any memory of that? Well... You know what? Let's just, uh, oh, I know how to figure this out. I ha- I brought a Christmas present for you. What? That I wanted to give you on the air. Oh, gosh. So go ahead and open that, and we'll use it to decide to figure out who goes first. This is perfect. Okay. This actually worked out perfectly. Um, Don't give me these skeptical looks. It's a nice present. I'm not, I'm bad at receiving gifts, okay? You're just giving me these looks like you're about to open, like, a live cockroach. Well, no, I didn't bring anything for you. And That's fine. I didn't get you a gift, so you would get me a gift. It's um very on, on brand for you. It's wrapped in comic book yes. pages. I've wrapped all my presents this year in comic book pages. Very green of um, you. I yeah. like it. I was like, I got some comics sitting around that just aren't, you know, aren't doing, doing the, anything for doing me. the trick. <laughs> uh, is it weighted? Because I can tell you right now, I always know how that flip is going to go in my, without the coin. I don't know. So what it is, is a coin, a decision-making coin that's either like read one more chapter or go to bed. Yep. And so one side is one more chapter and one side is go to bed. I can't so get then, it open. You know, in the evenings when you're reading, you can flip the coin and make your decision whether to go on or not. And it's like sealed with wax. Yeah, it's, wax. it's pretty fancy. It's very fancy. I thought this would be a good gift for Megan because maybe once in a while she would be encouraged to go to bed instead of reading <laughs> one more chapter. <laughs> but so then I thought just now, hey... We could just use this to make this decision right now. All right. So do you want to be one one more chapter or go to bed? Oh, I'm going to be go to bed. Okay. Uh, one more chapter. Okay. So that means you're going to start us okay. off. Okay. All right. You ready to get us started? Um, yes. But you are forgetting a very important element yes. of this podcast. Uh, we start with a joke. We start with a joke. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. What musical instrument is found in the bathroom? Mm. This invites a lot of fart jokes, <laughs> you know. That's, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say I don't know. Okay, um, a tube of toothpaste. Oh, yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I don't think Megan's like a big fart joke person. You know, but I'm a human being, and every yep. once in a while, one will you know hit the right spot. Yeah, but I, in general. You know how Cookie Monster went from Cookie Monster to, like, the Veggie Monster, and it was like cookies are a sometimes food? Yeah. I feel like for Megan, fart jokes are a sometimes joke. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Where for Peter, it's like, well, he's the fart joke monster. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I've got my four. Well, hold on. Okay. You got to do, like, the whole thing. Okay. So what we do on this podcast, which, by the way— my name is Megan. And I'm Peter. <laughs> uh, and we get together usually once a month, and then sometimes we get bad and we don't meet once a month. And we bring four books each, 
and we do a brief description of the four, and then Peter will pick two of mine to hear more about, and I will pick two of his. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then... We will also briefly talk about the other two, and sometimes it turns out to not be so brief. Yeah. And then you, you kind of get eight. Yep. Yeah, so if you're looking at this right now and the time on the podcast is like one hour and 53 minutes, you yeah. know what happened. Yeah, we, we lost control. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of you kind of have more information about this particular episode yeah. than we do right now. True. You're have- in the future. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, invest in Apple or something? Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right, So, as the starter, you're going to tell me your four books first. I am indeed. Great. The first is a graphic novel Mm. called Earth Divers by Stephen Graham Jones. And the artist is David Gianfelice, I believe is how it's pronounced. He's Italian. The second, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I am listening to it, narrated by Andy Serkis, who played Gollum in the movies. Okay. Number three is a biography that I had to get through Prospector mm. called The Duke of the Abruzzi by Mirella Tenderini and Michael Shandrick. I am taking a wild guess at Abruzzi <laughs> I bet you get it. I bet you get it right. Um he, he's, uh, I've already talked about him on the podcast because we did that polar exploration. Oh, right? okay. He, he was one of the guys. Okay. Um, and then number four is a romantic comedy called Never Met a Duke Like You by Amelie Howard. And it's kind of a historical <laughs> rom-com redo of uh, Clueless. Oh, okay. All right. Was Clueless a, like, redo of another thing? Yes. Clueless is a a modern take on Emma by Jane Austen. Okay. I was like, that feels like what that was. Yeah. That was a big thing for a little while. Like, Clueless or 10 Things I Hate About You or, like, whatever. Yeah. People were like, you know, we could remake some of this really super old stuff. Throw in a Heath Ledger. I feel like we're in the... The, I mean, at least they were, like, dipping back into the past. Now we're getting remakes of stuff that I watched when I was a kid. Oh, man. Okay, not to go too far off track, but real quick. So I was doing some research on the movie Waxwork uh-huh. and then the remake. The original and the remake, so the remake was in, like, the 1980s. They were 64 years apart. And I was like, okay, that's a respectable amount of time. Because I'm like, someone could have been born when the first one came out lived a full life, yeah. had a family, had a career, be retired, and then be like, I guess I'll go for a second round of waxwork. And then I was like, the time between The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man Homecoming was like two years. Yeah. And I was like, if you were born when Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, you wouldn't even be able to go to the theater by yourself to see Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. You wouldn't even be able to navigate physically to the theater. The police would be called because they'd be like, someone in a diaper is just walking along the side of the road alone. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, Well, I want to hear about Earth Divers first. Okay. I thought you might want to hear about that one. So I picked it because it's Stephen Graham Jones, who Mm -hmm. um, I'm a fan of horror. And Stephen Graham Jones is one of the like up and coming stars of horror uh, and he also happens to live in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. So he's like a local talent uh, making it big. 
So when I saw that he had a graphic novel, I've never read a graphic novel by him if he's ever done one before. This may be his first, as far as I know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. So I decided I needed to read it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's volume one. There are further volumes coming out. I don't know how many are planned, um, but this is basically an intro, it feels like. So it is this, it's so it's set in the future Mm -hmm. um, a bit. I'm not sure how far in the future. It feels like kind of, near future-ish. Okay. And um, it's been climate apocalypse time. Mm. You know, the the world is ending and most people have fled Earth to go, you know, find new planets to ruin, I guess. <laughs> well, that one's done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Taking care of business. <laughs> find, a, find a new one. Uh, and there's this group of Native people, Native Americans um, by heritage, who are still on Earth. Mm-hmm. And one of them has discovered uh, that there is this cave, and if you go into the back of it with some sort of like object from the time you want to be in, you can time travel. And so they decide that they are going to try to send someone into the past to change uh, a major historical event and try to change the way things went down. Climate-wise or other things? Just, yeah, the the entire history of the world, if they could change the trajectory of history so that they wouldn't end up where they are. Okay. And so the event that they they target, they're like, this is the thing. This is where it all went wrong. If we can, like, keep this from happening, then things might be different, is Columbus. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The subtitle of volume one of Earth Divers is Kill Columbus. Okay. (laughs) So they have one member of their group is a linguist, and so he speaks um, his native language, which I don't remember what it is. He speaks English, he speaks Italian, he speaks all of these old languages and has a talent for languages so that he can pick up others. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, we're going to send him back because he can, you know, pretend to be of that time and get onto the the Nina, the Pinto, or the Santa Maria. Okay. Like they identify, they you know, they've got all their history books and they're sure. like, this is, this is where we're going to put you. So he travels back in time and it works. And he ends up in, I think, Portugal, which is where they were going to launch the ships from. And he finds a sailor who was going to get on the ship and kills him and takes his clothes and his identity right. and, and gets onto the ship. I guess identity theft would be a lot easier a lot back easier. in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a driver's license? No, nobody does. <laughs> they don't have a car. I mean, people didn't even know what the king looked like. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Be like, here's a drawing of me. Yeah. Someone did one There's time. There's a guy on a coin. You know, yeah. does it actually look like him? Who knows? Know, vaguely. <laughs> kind of looks like a lot of guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he gets on the ship and it's basically following the voyage and his, he has all of these moral qualms like, um, he, if he has to kill someone, like, he doesn't want to do it. But then part of him's like, I'm here to, like, all of these people are dead, like, where I came from. Like, mm. you know, and. Uh, sure. So is it really killing someone if they're, quote, already dead? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and when you have their blood on your hands, I mean, my argument would be kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. <laughs> Especially when they didn't die that way in, like, the history book, like. You're yeah. there and you weren't there. and So, like, in this comic, is it, okay, there's time travel mm-hmm. and, like, uh, 
do they do they like do they have theories on like if he successfully kills Columbus, what that will do? Or is well, it like their their thought is if we can keep Columbus from quote unquote discovering North America, mm-hmm. then he won't like spread his diseases. They won't mm-hmm. start like mining everything for land and enslaving the native or for um, gold and enslaving the natives and you know all of this stuff. It will all be like either hopefully like it'll stop, which I think is doubtful, or it will be so delayed that the natives will have like a fighting chance to, you know, Mm. keep, keep their land, you know? So like if they had another, like, let's say 200 years or something, right. They might be, can they develop to a point where they're, where like native values of like keeping, keeping to the seasons and, honoring the land and all of this stuff. Um, if it can become bedrock in the culture there, mm-hmm. then instead of becoming like consumerism rampant, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe the earth will not turn into the like desert that it became in their future or in their, their present, I guess. Okay. So, okay. I think I'm getting this now. Yeah. Cause it's like, like Terminator, right? Like Terminator 2, let's say. Right. They have a pretty specific incident they're trying to stop. Right. But then in this book, it's more like everything is horrible. Yeah. So let's just do a Hail Mary to try right. and drastically change things right. in hopes that a drastic change will be an improvement. Right. Okay. Right. Gotcha. But as he is back there and like doing doing things that didn't happen in the history books... <laughs> Um, he's finding out that history, like the timeline, fights back. He's like an infection in history, and mm. it's like history is trying, trying to push him to get out, get rid of him. Yeah, mm. which is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So, and meanwhile, like he left his wife behind. When you're there, you can't go back. So it's like he left her, and she's in the future, and he's in the past, and they'll never meet again. It's really sad. And oh, so there's no returning. No to... returning. Hmm. And. Uh, so they're like looking for history books so that they can see has history changed, you know? Right. That kind of thing. Like, did it, was he successful and just nothing changed? Right. Or, you know, or what? So they're looking for history books that will have an event that they don't remember from their history books. Mandela effect kind exactly. of thing. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. And I that's like just it. volume one. Um, and it was, it's an interesting concept. It's a little confusing. Yeah. So it took me a while to kind of get my feet under me, but gotcha. I'm intrigued and I plan on reading the second one when it's released. So So Stephen Graham Jones writes a lot of horror. This sounds yeah. a little more maybe sci-fi-ish or yeah. not so horror centric. But it definitely doesn't um it doesn't pull punches, mm-hmm. you know, in like the events or the artwork. Like you're really watching this guy kind of wrestle with the worst of what it means to be human and like he has this lofty ideal but in achieving it he's doing some nasty things gotcha it's like that classic go back in time to kill baby Hitler thing right just a little different you know, Hank Green and John Green had a theory that instead of killing baby Hitler you should just start the uh, orphanage for dictators where you kidnap <laughs> them all and put them in an orphanage and raise them to be better people <laughs> Maybe, but I mean, if you put them all together, what if you create basically a uh, 
a super, Legion of Doom. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's a risk. That's always the thing with that, right? Because you have everybody immediately. It's like, well, but what if a worse guy comes, you know, because Hitler's not there. And then you're like, uh-oh. It's mega Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> this did not work out as I was hoping. I guess it's always the risk, right? Yeah. I just read a, a comic where Superman went back in time and it was kind of funny because he's trying not to mess up. It's one of those timelines where it's like, I don't want to mess up time by right. doing stuff I wasn't supposed to do. stepping on a butterfly. Yeah. yeah. And so you're like, and so at one point he's back in like the, in World War II. And then another point he makes a dinosaur friend. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, he's kind of checking all the boxes of yeah. things you'd want to do anyway. For anyone who is interested in time travel that's less, like, philosophically fraught, yeah, there's this series, and I can't remember who wrote it. I will get it. Um, we'll put it in the show notes for sure because it's great. It's uh, this group of historians who basically go back in time and save historical artifacts that history thinks were destroyed. So they get, like, the uh, destruction of the Library of Alexandria they get there right before it burns down and save everything they can and bring it into the future. That's funny. It's pretty great. And they end up in like dinosaur times mm. and it's wacky, but it's super fun. They like don't care that it's, you know, that it's ridiculous. They lean into the ridiculous and it's a lot of fun. I kind of like that in time travel. I like that this series, it sounds like, you know, it's basically, it's a magic cave, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I prefer that because at this point we've had so many time travel narratives that like try to explain it scientifically. And yeah. I'm like, look, this is all just stuff you're making up. Yeah. Like, I, I don't need to hear. Make up a simpler way. Yeah. You walk in here and it happens. Unveil a gizmo and it just works yeah. and you have no idea how. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So that's Earth Divers. Earth Divers. Volume one. Volume one. Um, all right, I brought four, but I have like ten sheets of paper. So you have four sheets of paper. I have no four books. Oh, I do have four sheets of paper. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. Pretty uh by a, a lot. Okay. Uh the first one is a manga title called Berserk. Ah, okay. Which I've read thirty some volumes of now. Wow. Which is a huge record for me. Are you me. going on an Alona Andrews journey? Um, kind of. All right. But, you know, a little different. Uh, the next one is also a manga title, Soichi, by Junji Ito. Soichi? Yeah, S-O-I-C-H-I. Okay. It's a character's name. Okay. Um, next is the first Goosebumps book, Welcome to the Dead House, which I read for reasons Okay. And then the <laughs> other one is a book called Strange Matter, which is kind of a Goosebumps knockoff. And that's volume six, Bad Circuits. <laughs> These... <coughs> <coughs> this okay. is what happens when I have two months of not doing this. So I don't, I'm not thinking about reading anything that I'm going to have to talk about. <laughs> all right. All right. So. I feel like I want to split these up and have like one mm -hmm. manga and one goosebumps weirdness. Mm -hmm. Um let's I want to hear about your Alona Andrews journey. Okay. With Berserk. So Berserk is a title that I had read probably I've 
always had this idea of if I was a manga character, I would be one volume man because I read a lot of volume ones of Mm -hmm. a lot of series. And if you know anything about manga, it's like famous for, you know, volume 125. I mean, there's a lot. It's really common for manga to be like up in the 50s or 60s of volumes. Well, and like you always hear, it doesn't get good till number seven. Yes. Yeah. Which is something that I'm going to discuss here. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that's part of the problem is people are like, you know, you got to play. It's a lot like actually um, Japanese role playing games for Mm -hmm. like Super Nintendo or something. And a lot of times you'll hear about I've I've been trying to get into role playing games or try them out this year because I've never really been into them. And I'm like, maybe it's this whole sector of gaming that I would like. And there are lots of things about it that I would think I would like, but it just never works out. And it's the same thing where people are like, about hour seven is when it really picks up. And I'm like, like hour seven of, you know, 21. And I'm like, or I could just play three games that are fun for two hours each. Yeah. So anyway, um, I read volume one of Berserk as I've read many volume ones. And it's not it's not like I read it and I'm like. This is terrible. It's more like, eh, you know, I'm good. And, uh, you know, I, I get intrigued by hearing, like, the premise of a, a manga and then I read the volume one and I'm like, I just feel like I got it or something. Yeah. So I read the first volume of this probably, like, 20 years ago or something and was like, eh, whatever, you know, it's same old same. Yeah. Um, I got into this because I was playing a game called Fear and Hunger, which is like a role-playing game. And it's got a lot of, uh, it's very dark. It's very like graphic and awful in a lot of ways. And the creator of it said he was very inspired by Berserk. Okay. And I was like, huh, you know, because I was thinking like, I don't really remember it being particularly interesting or dark or whatever. So I was like, I'm going to give this another shot. Okay. So I read the first volume again and was kind of like, eh. You know, but it uh, the art is pretty amazing, and I had to give it that. But then, so I, I kept going because why not? And because um, I, I read the first volume and, like, got into the second and was like, okay, and was like, you know what I'm going to do is stop reading this when I hit a volume where I'm like, there was nothing, like, wild happening in this. Because each one had at least one event in it that I was like, whoa. (laughs) Or, you know, it had an image in it that I was like, that is horrifying, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so I got up to volume four and then that's when things got really good. And so what the series does is it starts with volume one, kind of throws you in the middle of the story and you go through one, two, and three. And then volume four is when you get the backstory and everything comes together And I was reading this and I was like, this has to be one of those, it was the style at the time kind of things where it's like, oh, you got to do a Tarantino start in the middle of the action thing. So I was like, why didn't this series start with volume four? Because this is great. And like, it was a, you know, I'm not like a big origin story person either for like superheroes and stuff. I know this about you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But this is uh, fascinating and it's like really well done. It's really interesting Um, The art is, like, incredible. I mean, it has to be said about the art and the book. It's very violent. Yeah. Um, It's got a lot of uh, graphic 
horrifying looking violence uh, monsters. It's got sexual violence in it as well. Um, it's, you know, this is not for the kids. Okay. However, uh, it's it's like I'm doing a content warning for this, you know, and like it's probably beyond what normally would be to my taste. However, um, I feel like the things that happen in the book don't just happen to like be edgelordy and like increase the drama. Right. They have super significant ongoing uh, ramifications. Yeah. Like it ripples throughout the story and, you know, creates new whatever. So um, I th- I think it's a really good book. I think like each volume kind of has something new to it or like. What's it about? Oh, yeah. OK. <laughs> it's about basically it starts out being about this swordsman named Guts. And he's like in basically medieval Europe. Um, and he is fighting these sort of demon monster things that look really horrifying. Okay. Then you kind of get his backstory. So he was uh, he was born an orphan. He was actually born in this cursed way because his mother was hanged and he was like almost to term. And so then he fell out of his mother after she was dead. And so, you know, he was cursed and like nobody would touch this baby. But this kind of roving band of mercenaries came by and this guy was like, yeah, we'll take it. You know, I don't know. Sure, They're well equipped to care for an infant. Yeah, and I think he was kind of like, I mean, whatever, like we need cannon fodder, you know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you have to put some time in before he's ready for cannon fodder. Yeah. Yep. Um so they took this baby for whatever reason and then he kind of grows up on a battlefield and you know is becomes this swordsman. So then it's kind of a basic medieval swords and sandals kind of thing. Okay. Um but then it takes a real turn. And there's a lot of backstory about um, essentially what happens is a hole gets torn in our reality and all these monsters come pouring in and he's kind of cursed forever. And, you know, some of his comrades are also cursed in this. So it turns from like a bunch of knights fighting medieval battle stuff to like monster fighting and... um, like thematically, you know, so that's kind of like what it's a the story is, right. and then what it's about is very debatable. I mean, I think it's like it's to me, it's about like uh, finding moments of joy or contentment or happiness in a extremely bleak world and situation. Yeah, which I think spoke to me in a way, and like um, it's very, it's like a very human story in that way. I think it's also a little bit about, like, people, uh, it's like, can you carve out your own destiny in the world? Are you basically, you're born into what you can be, or can you choose what you want to be? And how does that work, and what does that look like? And I think there's also a lot of themes about, like, you know, at one point in your life, maybe you thought X was what you wanted and what you should be doing and what a good life looked like. And then later you're like, oh, maybe that's not what it is. You know, maybe that's not what it's all about. Yeah. So it's got a lot of those kind of themes in it. And I think that's why 
for me, like the violence and all the other stuff that is, you know, not to everyone's taste. Um, but for me, it's such a high-low contrast because, like, the lows are low in this book and, like, the dark parts are dark <laughs> and, like, pretty... I'm not, like, an easy person to, you know... Shock. Shock, yeah. yeah. And even some of the things in there, I'm like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> this is a, a lot. Um, but then I think that makes these sort of high parts a lot brighter and more interesting. And... uh from, you know, storyline to storyline, it it ups the ante a lot. It changes a lot. And I think that's what I really like about it. It doesn't feel like you're reading the same story over and over, volume to volume. Right. It's very, a very quickly evolving story. Um, so that by the time, like, you get to volume 10, it's like a completely different book than it was in volume 5. Um, so that's my super long recommendation. Also... I was very sad to find out that the um, writer-illustrator of it passed away, I think, just this year. Oh. And it was kind of a bummer because I was like, um, I don't know, it was just sad to find out because I was like, I just found this thing and it's like so great. And then you find out that he passed away and you're like, ugh. That, yeah. And it was very sudden. He wasn't old or infirm or anything. It was like a birth defect in his heart that they didn't know about kind of thing. Yeah. And he died very suddenly. And so, I don't know, it was just kind of sad. It was like bittersweet. Yeah. I mean, at least he left this legacy behind. He know? did. Yeah. And I gather that this is a pretty big deal. I mean, you read a lot of uh, other artists, especially in Japan, have been inspired by this book and like um, the things that it does and yeah. where it goes. So, you know, that's a, that's a, positive side of it but yeah it's yeah it was it was very bittersweet to find that out yeah so uh there you go that's and how were you reading these are they i'm reading them uh well a mix we have some in regular manga volumes that's digest size that's probably like six by four inch books or Mm -hmm. something but we also have some of the larger editions, which is what I would recommend. Okay. Um, they're like a hardcover edition, and it, and it is like three normal volumes worth in one hardcover. And the pages are larger. Um, it's easier to appreciate the art and stuff like that. So that's what I like a lot. Cool. Yeah. So that's Berserk. All right. <laughs> okay. I want to hear Never Met a Duke Like You. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think uh, rom-coms, I'm always interested, like, where that's going, and also the title made me laugh, so I have to go with it. I mean, it's exactly what you would expect of a rom-com. It's super light (laughs) and funny and frothy, and, like, do did I walk away and then think about it, like, every day for the next month? No. Right. But, like, it was fun while I was reading it, and the characters were amusing and all of that stuff, so... Um, it's the main character is Lady Vesper Lindhurst <laughs> and uh, she so she's um, part of, you know, the aristocracy in England and growing up, she lives next door to a duke's family like their estates in the country are near each other. And so she grew up being friends with um, the future Duke of Graydon. Um, so they would like run around with each other and, you know, play and just be kids together. Right. And then, you know, they start growing older and um, at one point the 
the actual, so the Duke, the her friend's father, pass, um, passes away, and he becomes the Duke. And so she is in her first season, you know, you know, seasons. No. So when you, you know, back in like the Regency or Victorian times, if you are a lady of the aristocracy, um, you would have your, you know, your season where you're, um, you're like of marriageable age, you know, so you go to London, you get all of the best dresses, you go to a bunch of parties, you meet a bunch of people and hopefully in the end you walk away with a suitable match and you get married. Okay. Um, so it's her first season and she's, you know, very excited and she goes to a party and um, there are all of these rules that if you're a romance reader, you learn about, you know, how this what all has works. To happen. Yeah, yeah, like you can never dance more than two dances with the same person at one ball. That's oh. uh, otherwise then, you know, you are getting close to marriage. Might as well get married. Might then. as well. And, <laughs> you know. So I'd be married to Christy, who I knew in sixth grade. Mm, yeah. we danced probably twice at a dance. Oh, well, it is twice as acceptable. It's more than twice oh, okay. that becomes a problem. Maybe I would have been safe then. Yeah, yeah. But as long as they weren't in a row, too. You can't Are there any specific two, rules about a uh, kiss from a rose? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that wasn't around at the okay. time. <laughs> um, so anyway, she's at her very first ball, and... Um, he is announced at the ball and, you know, they've been friends all these years and he gives her what in the day was called the cut direct, <laughs> which is basically like he, um, she is introduced. He looks at her, turns and walks away. And it's like it's it's social like it's it's bad. It's it's for someone. So a duke is like next to a prince in mm-hmm. like in like standing in the aristocracy. So he's right up there. And for uh, a duke to, like, ignore you at a ball is um, socially, it, it'll it'll ruin your season. Okay. Um, so this is like if I was on, like, uh, America's Got Talent and I got the, like, X out immediately. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Bad times. Okay. And the fact that it came from someone that she cared for and, like, mm. um, she, you know, never understood it. So they become estranged. Okay. And she, because she is, like, sparkling and, like, fun and whatever, she's a little unconventional, but she still manages to, like, get invitations. She's um, socially active and all that stuff. She gets all kinds of proposals but accepts none of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he leaves the country and goes to America and digs up dinosaurs. And so they <laughs> That's are not where I thought this was going. Digs up dinosaurs. There's always some sort of interesting All side right. something going on in a romance novel. So um so a bunch this of niece. <laughs> so a bunch of years pass and she is Getting to the age where, like, if you don't get married, you're going to be what they call, like, on the shelf. Like, a little out of season at this point. Starting to get mm. to out of season, yeah. All right. Um, and But she has this great group of female friends, and uh, some of them are married and some of them are not. And she has some success with um, matchmaking. So she, like, put – she arranged for one of her friends to meet her husband, and they're now married. And her sister, she um, – she had got together with one of their like footmen, I think, or like a butler, which is kind of scandalous that a an aristocratic lady would end up married to a servant. But she 
saw that they were good together and encouraged it. And so she has some success in that field. Okay. And uh, the Duke comes back to town unexpectedly. And uh, it turns out that he's there for a couple of reasons. One is that his mother was about to have him declared legally dead, which would free up the estate and give her, you know, access to the money and whatever. And so he's back to say, hello, not dead, still Not Duke. dead, still digging up dinosaurs. That's right. And also so that he can uh, arrange for his mother's ward, um, this girl that they grew up with, Judith, um, who's younger than they were. That's the first term that I'm familiar with, his ward. His ward. Just because of Batman, yeah. obviously. Basically an orphan that they take care <laughs> yes. of. Yes. Um, so that she can have a season and, and uh, hopefully get married. Okay. And so he's there to arrange that. And um, so the book opens um, after all of this kind of stuff has already gone down. And Vesper is at her country home and she's wandering around the grounds and it starts to look like rain. And she happens to be near the Duke's, you know, country home, closer there than to her own. And so she's like, I'm going to pop in there and wait out the rain. And so the servants let her in and they give her like a little sandwich or whatever. And she's going to wait out the rain. And she starts wandering around, hears a noise, goes to the attic where she's hearing this weird noise, opens the door, steps in, and the Duke of Graydon is in there. <laughs> and the door shuts behind her, and he's, like, lunging for it. It turns out that he's been locked in there for God knows how long. <laughs> like, he went up to look for, like, some papers or something, and the door closed, and he couldn't get it back open. And so now she's up there as well. Mm. Um, and so they're locked in an attic together, which is Aha. scandalous. Yep. Um, turns out to not be all that big of a deal. They both like keep it under under wraps. But in the course of the evening, they like they have this this hatred of each other ever since her, you know, her. Sure. Yeah. She snub. He snubbed her. Or exactly. Whatever. Yeah. And but they walk cut out of supreme, the room. Whatever. The cut direct. Damn it! I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so they leave the room with an agreement that um, she is going to help his ward you know, in society. So mm -hmm. take her to some parties, introduce her to the right kind of, of gentlemen. Okay. You know, and not the fortune hunters and whatnot. And so it's basically the story of this, this season of balls and her escorting the friend around and them getting to know each other and her beginning to understand what was actually happening when he ignored her at the ball, which turns out to not be what it seemed to be. And there's this mm -hmm. whole other side plot going on with um, the Duke and his his mother, who's basically his parents, because you'll remember his father died kind of young, mm -hmm. and it turns out that he had been um, put in, in a, an asylum. Oh. Know? Yeah. And uh, so there's, there's a whole, you know, that event, that part of his life kind of informs everything else in the story. Mm -hmm. And it, as you're reading, you kind of start to uncover all of what's actually going on in in both of their lives. And she's, you know, a little bit maybe ADHD. She's got some neurodivergent tendencies and he is kind of antisocial and he's holding serious grudge and, you know, so but it's all still, you know, very funny and lighthearted. You get all of these funny scenes like getting locked in the attic together. Mm -hmm. and, um, so yeah. Nice. It, it's light and fun, but there's still some substantial stuff going in there for anybody who's looking for a little more modern take on a historical romance. You know, this touches on 
you know, mental illness and the way that people were treated when they were potentially and or maybe not mentally ill back in history and mm -hmm. neurodivergency and all of that stuff. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And there's a cute cat in it. Oh, yep. That makes sense. Yeah. It just that same Superman comic, Lois Lane had a cat who tore up Superman's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. I was like, why would you do that? Yeah. Cats are there to cause trouble. They are. She yep. gets stuck under a table trying yeah. to get the cat in the middle of one of her, like, soirees. Cat being a cat. Yep. Cat Cafe seems like a ripe environment for a rom-com, I think. Oh, sure. That seems like the way to go. Yeah. yeah. I'd watch it. I think anybody Slash would. Read right? it. Because at the very worst, you're like, you know, there's a lot of cute cat footage in here. So, you know, whatever. Cats. Yeah. It, it would work. A plus. All right. All right. So. That's Never Met a Duke Like You. Yes. By Amelie Howard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I am I'm going to pick one of your Goosebumpsy books. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, so I I am older than the audience for Goosebumps. Like when Goosebumps started coming out, I, I was already older. Probably than the just a little bit. Just a yeah. bit. I was of the like Christopher Pike generation. Okay, yeah. That's what I was reading yep. at, the, at that age. Similar vibe, I think. Yeah, I think they're they're in the same tradition, yeah. but different eras. Yep. So, but I have I've actually read a Goosebumps book because in college I took a class called Literature of Children and Childhood, uh -huh. and we read um, the one with the plants. Stay out of the basement. That's the one. The book that is basically titled for what the kids refuse to do yeah. throughout the book. I mean, it's like any horror, right? Yep. You do the thing you're not supposed to do, and chaos ensues. I, so I started reading that because that's the second one. Mm -hmm. So I started reading that after the first one, and I'm, like, reading it now. And it's just hilarious because it's called Stay Out of the Basement. The dad says stay out of the basement, like, twice in the first two pages. Mm -hmm. And the kids have already been in the basement, like, four times. Yeah. <laughs> they won't stay out of the basement. Checks out. <laughs> I kind of wondered if R.L. Stein was, like... My kids will not stay out of the basement. Like, you know, he's got a workshop or something, and he's like, I'm going to write a horror story and tell these kids to stay out of the basement. Yeah. You know what happens to kids who don't stay out of the Killed basement? Killed by a swamp monster. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> you got kids who won't stay out of the basement no matter how many times? Yeah. There's monsters. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, since I have actually read a Goosebumps, I am curious about your knockoff. Okay. So I got curious about Goosebumps knockoffs a couple weeks ago because I don't know why. And there's some pretty hilarious ones, okay. you know, and I think some of the titles are very funny. There's one that's like uh, Uncle from Another Planet, you know, <laughs> like whatever. Sure, And sure. you can tell from the covers, you're like, I think this may have been re, you know, this is probably a book that existed five years prior to Goosebumps and they're oh. like, what? we you know bumps like, it up a little we could uh we could ride this popularity yeah. train if we just switched a couple things up yeah and i think what they didn't account for is like you could get away with that with like let's say harry potter because mm -hmm. you only got a harry potter book like once every two years or three years or something right so you know there's a long dry spell in between when it's like 
Well, your Charlie bone can sneak right in there. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. kids might be like, eh, it's not quite as good, but you know what? It'll do. I got nothing else. So, But unfortunately for the makers of other books at this time, Goosebumps was like, I don't know, probably four or five a year. So it was almost, it was probably as close as we've ever been to books coming out at the speed at which they're being consumed. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway... I came across this one at the thrift store. It's a series called Strange Matter, and I picked number six. There wasn't a number one. Okay. So I think it was probably something like, you know, volumes three through ten with some holes in there. Okay. Um, so, and, what, like, what? when were these published, roughly? Like, early 90s. Okay. Um, and it was. it seems, like, very much goosebumpsy because, you know, the— the overall title is Strange Matter, and then each one has a subtitle. Right. And also the Strange Matter word uh, has, like, slime in the letters. I was going to say, is it all drippy and yes. gross? Yes. Nice. And it has, like, green slime in it because I was like, I mean, everything was slime at that time on Nickelodeon and Gak yeah. and all that. And slime is back before the same generation. Yep. Just with, like, stuff in it and in jars. Yeah. It's back. Yeah. Slime never really left. <laughs> So, and then I picked this one because the I found the cover art to be the most hilarious. Okay. And because it's a kind of about a uh, an AI, and I was like, I'm interested to see what an AI from 1994 is like in a yeah. children's novel. So, uh, it follows the story of these two kids who, it's a brother and sister, and the sisters are kind of main character. And the brother is a science nerd, kind of. He's and our exposition guy. Yeah. Maybe. He's going to make the AI and also, okay. yeah, explain it to his sister, who's not, like, dim-witted. She's just kind of... Um, Normal. Yeah. She's there because you have to explain to me, the reader, like, what? Like, right. <laughs> how is this kid making a supercomputer? <laughs> um and so, and also, I found out through the course of this, I didn't know, but Goosebumps was originally intended to be for girls. And they were kind of trying to push it for girls. And I think the first three or four books do have girls as the main narrator character. That's cool. Yeah. I'd like to see more ladies doing horror. Well, and I guess throughout its life, at least the original series, it was about 50 50 girls' boys reading nice. Goosebumps. So I'm like, eh, I guess it, you know. Yeah, it hit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, I was like, this explains why the first Goosebumps book is so purple. The cover is very purple. <laughs> and I always thought that was an odd choice. And the second cover also has quite a bit of purple, which, you know, I'm like, hey, look, in 2023, colors, you know, whatever, so and so forth. But, like, if I'm trying to run a Scholastic book fair in 1994, I'm like, mm, purple is an interesting choice for a, you know, gender-neutral book series. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so this also has a female uh, main narrator character, and her brother is making an... Uh, I think they call it like a learning computer or something like that. Okay. And um, he's making this for the science fair, which he's lost many years in a row, to his rival, Frank Dunk. <laughs> Frank Dunk. That <laughs> will bring him down someday. I know. As soon as I read the name... the the name Frank Dunk, I was like, Frank Dunk, you know, like you just know that Frank Dunk is a little punk. <laughs> like, you know, you know, he sucks. You know that you're like, 
Yeah, this kid needs to beat Frank Duncan. <laughs> this kid needs to be taken down a few pegs. Yeah. Frank Dunk thinks he's so awesome. <laughs> so um basically, okay, the main the main boy is named Daniel and his rival's Frank Dunk. So they're both making science fair projects for this big science fair. Daniel is making this computer based on designs from his dad, who I think is dead. Not a hundred percent sure. But <laughs> You know how sometimes it seems like there's a lot of orphans in these books yeah. or at very least parents who are very laissez-faire yeah. about. <laughs> Absent parents are definitely like you, you can't have kids on adventures with like attentive parents. Yeah. I mean, as an example, so he makes an AI. Frank Dunk's science fair project turns out to be a fear bomb, <laughs> which is like. Straight is up, he like is he the scarecrow in the Batman comics? That's exactly what it's like, <laughs> except it's it's a great example of the thing they do in comics or movies or whatever, where a scientist makes a thing, and then he's like, "My God, I never considered that this could be used for evil." And you're like, "It's a fear bomb. What did you think?" And so Frank's, Frank Dunk's idea is, like, you have this in your – it's a home security device. Sure. So you, you arm it with your security system, let's say, at night. And then if a burglar breaks into your house, the fear bomb goes off. The burglar becomes very afraid and leaves the house. Right. And I'm like, Or you well, have a potentially unhinged, violent yes. person, terrified and armed, and it loose in your home. Exactly. I was like, so the idea here is that – a person breaks into my home, possibly with a gun, and then I'm just going to give him hallucinogens. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we're going to solve this problem. <laughs> and, you know, like... Uh, at best. <laughs> Frank Dunk admittedly was also like, well, it's kind of a problem because I currently don't have a way to make sure that the family in the house doesn't also be affected by <laughs> sheer bomb. So you just have a, you know... Robber and family cowering in a corner, whimpering when the police arrive. Yeah, the cops show up and they're just like, what is happening? You know, or everybody is just tipping over a car. You know, <laughs> they, they have super strength because their adrenaline is going. Yeah. And they're just screaming. Coursing through their veins. Yeah. Screaming and tipping yes. They just won't stop screaming. We've given them every sedative that we have and nothing. You know, they're just, it's like being on PCP or something. Yeah. Who knows? And this is, by the way, like a middle school science fair. Right. This is happening. Yeah. I mean, I've always looked there for my upper level science developments. Yep. Yeah. And so it begs the question, you know, as I was reading this and we're getting towards the end where, okay, so Daniel makes this computer and it starts out innocently enough, obviously. And it's like, everything's fine. It's learning how to play chess, whatever. And then, of course, takes a turn. Because, like, Daniel turns the computer off and then the computer does some things because it's like, I don't want to be turned off. I want to, you know, do things and mm -hmm. learn or whatever. And uh, eventually inhabits the body of a mannequin, which is completely unexplained, but whatever. And then uh, is going to do something so that it'll never be turned off again, you know, right. kind of thing. So then what we have at our climax is uh, Daniel shows up with his supercomputer. Frank Dunk shows up with his fear bomb. Mm. And the computer, you know, goes haywire, steals the fear bomb and, like, goes to the city power plant or whatever and is, like, going to detonate the fear bomb and everyone in the city is going to be terrified. 
So I'm reading this and I'm like, you know, Goosebumps would be like, usually it was like one or two kids who are kind of experiencing this thing, but the scale was usually fairly small. Right. <laughs> it was not uh, a Skynet situation. Right. <laughs> like it wasn't. The world like, will continue turning. Yeah, it wasn't a kill all humans. It was usually <laughs> like, well, maybe these two to four particular humans are endangered. Right. You know, but it was not. <laughs> I'm going to turn your house into my swamp home. Yes, right. Dad has gone a little overboard in his science experiments and did the classic, uh, got so obsessed with asking if he could do it, didn't ask should he do it. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a running theme. Presents a danger to our family and maybe like a neighbor. <laughs> you know, a neighbor's yeah. pet goes missing. Right, yeah. Oh, the pets. There was a, a a dog that dies in the first Goosebumps, and I was kind of surprised by that because I was like, you don't have to do that, R.L. Stein. You can just, like, the dog can go missing and then just reappear at the end. You don't have to. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so it did leave me with an interesting quandary that I present to you now. Oh, okay. You're the judge at a middle school science fair. Okay. And I'm ready. All the all the things you've seen up to this point have been, you know, typical middle school volcano, yeah. whatever. I did my report on Venus flytraps. There you go. And it's like, here's how Venus flytrap works. And it's like, okay, uh, legitimately good for a middle schooler. But you're like, I mean, this isn't exactly like the frontier of science. Right. Then you come across uh, Daniel. And he has created an actual AI that can learn and has thoughts and arguably feelings. Okay. <laughs> then you go to Frank Dunk's table and he has invented an actual fear bomb. Now, the application of the fear bomb seems pretty questionable. Mm -hmm. But the science behind this is pretty amazing because you're like, this is chemistry. This is neuroscience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on here. Question. Mm-hmm. Has he been able to demonstrate that the fear bomb is effective? It works. But, I can't remember how they, like, show that it works, but okay. it definitely works. Okay. It's a big problem so that the computer steals So he, like, used it on a rat this. or something, and I could, as yeah. a judge, I could see that it, yeah, it was effective. Yeah, there's something like that, okay. you know. It does what he says it's going to do. Okay. Um, you have to decide who wins first place in the science fair. Okay. Now, you can choose to just do, as in this book, what happened is they were going to award it to either Frank Dunk or Daniel. But then when the AI, you know, went on, went rogue and stole the bomb and all this, they awarded it to some kid who invented something like a fold-out sofa that folds itself back up. Because <laughs> they were like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. This, isn't that amazing? That's useful. But whatever. Those things are a pain. Mm-hmm. But let's assume that they have not gone off the rails yet okay. and you have both of these two options and you're like I mean obviously one of these is far and away the most amazing mm -hmm. feat of science not only I've seen in a science fair but probably in my lifetime okay which one do you give the award to all right I I, I know immediately okay and I will I will explain why all right I would give it to the AI Okay. Because this is a thing that we are still struggling to master mm -hmm. today. Whereas you can find yourself terrified and huddled in a corner with just the right hallucination. That's true. 
I suppose that is something. Yeah. That is a good question. Like if I is it that no one has invented the fear bomb yet because it's difficult or impossible or is it because people have been like, I'm not sure that that has a useful application. Yeah. <laughs> or both. Yeah. Or I can achieve this effect by watching a scary movie. Mm-hmm. And then lying awake, listening to my house settle and, at night and being terrified. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I go the opposite way mm. for different reasons. Explain. Uh, basically, I give it to Frank Dunk and the fear bomb because I want this kid like in the system and I want people <laughs> aware of what's happening and hopefully like a government agency that can handle this better than me, judge of middle school science fair. I'm like, I don't even know who to notify about this, but I feel somebody should be notified about this. So you think that awarding him a middle school science fair trophy will achieve that end? Uh, I guess I'm hopeful that in my capacity as middle school science fair judge, that's the best I can do. <laughs> like, I'm, doing, I'm trying to highlight this. And be like, hey, everybody. I mean. What, look look over here, please. <laughs> I would argue that you could also either just like phone up the FBI. Yes. Or like keep an eye on this kid. Find out where he gets into college. Contact the science department there and say, keep an eye on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's got to be somebody. I just, you know, I'm thinking like I got to call someone. And maybe it's also a little bit of an entrapment where I'm like, hey, Frank Dunk, you won the thing. Come back here in next week and get your check. Mm. So that way I can be like, well, and then I'm going to have some guys from the they FBI. They have the check in like this room that's all like covered in curtains. Yes. And he walks in, picks up the trophy, and then it slams down like one of those cages that you trap feral cats in. Yeah. Or like uh, the peach tree building in Dread 3D, as we're all familiar with. Steel shutters just enclose the whole thing. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I guess I fear, you know, Frank Dunk being, uh, you know, not rewarded in the science fair is maybe the or- the supervillain origin. Mm. The uh, Hitler origin story. Didn't get into art school. Yeah. Became a yep. mass genocidal dictator. Yes. And, like, many comic book stories, especially from, like, the 60s and 70s, the villains have what I would call very petty (laughs) reasons for becoming villains. Why don't you cry about it reasons? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Where I'm like, I mean, I understand that you're unhappy about this, but I still, you know, one person rejecting you from working at the Daily Bugle does not... Maybe put in some other applications. Do we have to, like, tear down buildings? Yeah. Do you really need to have, like, a scorpion tail grafted onto your body, like, Mm. to your spine permanently? Is that, you know, are we there yet? I feel like like there's steps in between. Yeah. So anyway, those are my reasons, but, you know. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, um, that was Strange Matter, Volume 6, Bad Circuits. Uh, I don't recommend it. (laughs) I mean, it's fine. Talking about it is more fun than reading it. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like a bad movie that way where you're like, you know, the highlights are a lot more fun than actually reading it. Yeah. I remember when The Room was out and everyone was talking about how bad The Room was. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I feel like 
watching all these YouTube videos of people like in ex- being like gobsmacked about the room yep. is about the height of my experience. Like that, that's the optimal yeah. room for me. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing is just so bizarre. But yeah, I agree. I feel like that one's kind of too like for people who are real like cinephiles. It's more funny because you're like, you know what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And like, I read the book too about the making of the room. And it yeah. was like, <coughs> when they're talking about, he filmed it with two different kinds of cameras simultaneously, like side by side, which nobody does because why? I was going to say, what would be the point of it? There really is none. Uh, it was just, it was because he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, we are going to do it this way. Makes and, makes makes sense. Yeah, or like blue screening an environment like a building rooftop that you also have access to in real life. Yeah. You're like, why? Anyway, that's okay. a strange matter. Okay. So Excellent. now you've got to go over your four and My the four. other two that yes. you didn't get to. All right. So I discussed uh, Earth Divers by Stephen Graham Jones with art by... David Gianfelice, I think. Uh, And we talked about Never Met a Duke Like You by Amelie Howard. Uh, I also brought The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, um, specifically the audiobook version narrated by Andy Serkis. And there are multiple audio versions. Um, This is the one that I wanted to listen to because I wanted to see if he would do the Gollum voice. And he does. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) But um, he's a really great narrator. I would have been so angry if he didn't. Well, it started out, and um, like in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, there's a scene where Gandalf is talking about Gollum, Mm -hmm. and it's not in the Gollum voice. And I was like, he's not doing the Gollum voice. And it turns out that he was doing Gandalf's impression. Mm -hmm. So he gets into the weeds. All right. Yeah, he's a great narrator. He does a lot of great voices. Everything from like the the high hissy Gollum voice to like the the very deep resonant like commanding Gollum or um, Gandalf or or Aragorn voices and um, anyway, he's, that's some hardcore nerd stuff. But I'm I like it. That's yeah. appropriate. Yeah, in I the mean, context. it's a great story. I love <laughs> the movies, uh, and I've been wanting. I read the books before the movies were released, um, but they are a, an investment. Mm-hmm. Like, they require a lot of attention, a certain <laughs> amount of time. Um, they're very lorry, you know, mm-hmm. very world-buildy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't remember them clearly. And um, I d- also didn't feel a compulsion to reread them, but I wanted to revisit those stories anyway. So this was my way of kind of doing that. And I have to say that I think it's the way to go. Uh, especially when you have a like a quality narrator, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that I found very difficult to get through in the books as a reader um, was some of the best, you know, part of the story hmm. as a listener, like the Tom Bombadil stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember just feeling like it was ridiculous mm-hmm. when I was reading it in the book because um, it's very like sing songy rhymey. Yeah. Um, but when you have someone who can put these songs to a tune, right. And who can come up with a character voice that makes sense. Yep. Um, all of the sudden, instead of being like my amateurish kindergarten version of Tom Bombadil, you have something a little more 
interesting with a touch of sophistication. Yeah. And it it works. It feels to me like, you know, if someone was like, oh, man, I really like this, uh, you know, Queen album. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, I'll read the liner notes. Yeah. And you're like, eh, I don't know. Song lyrics just read <laughs> as song lyrics are always so weird to me. Yeah. Because I, I, I would work. never come up with the melody that matches them. Yeah. Like, that's how I know I am not musically inclined. Because <laughs> never in a million years with a million chances would I come up with anything approximating the tune. Right. So, but yeah. So I recommend it. You can get them in Hoopla, but Hoopla has multiple versions. So make sure you're getting the uh, anti-circus version. Okay. At least that would be my recommendation. Uh, and then I read The Duke of the Abruzzi by Mirella Tenderini um, and Michael Shandrick. The Duke of the Abruzzi was a mountaineer. He was also an Italian duke, so he was royalty. Um, his father, for a time, was a king of this region in Spain. Um, he ended up getting overthrown, so boo-hoo, that's sad. <laughs> he would have been potentially king. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a big monarchist, so, I'm you spelling Abruzzi now that I know it's from Spain. Well, Abruzzi is actually from Italy. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, um, I'm sticking with it. It's an Italian family, but they had, like, claims to the throne in Spain. You know how you know how it yeah, gets. Sure. Um, but his... What with the uh, final cuts and all? Cut direct. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Write it down. Cut direct. <laughs> the next time you'll know. I've read cut direct by me where I <laughs> wrote in a journal over and over what that means. Uh, anyway, um, so he was a mountaineer and he was one of the people to first climb like uh, Mont Blanc and Zermatt, the Matterhorn in, uh, in the Alps. And he was involved in at least one expedition to the North Pole that was unsuccessful, but um, did beat a furthest north, like, record at the time. Right. He also um, was involved in the one of the first expeditions, if not the first, to climb K2 in the Himalayas. Oh, cool. Um, and the reason it was K2 and not Mount Everest is because at the time, Mount Everest was closed by Chinese, Chinese and Tibetan borders. They wouldn't oh, allow right. uh, Europeans in. So you couldn't get access to. Okay. Um, So they were going to climb K2. Unsuccessful. He actually believed that it would never be successfully climbed. It was that difficult. I think it's still known as like one of, if not the most difficult mountains to climb. So I think so. He wasn't like a big wimp for saying it. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like a legitimately difficult mountain. It is kind of wild when you see pictures from like the first people who've tried to climb these things. Yeah. Like. That dude's in, like, leather boots. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he does not have smart wool. He does not have Yeah, they don't have those, like, he well, and, like all the, the carabiners that expand in the <laughs> ice. and like any of that. Yeah, they're just, like, roped with, with each other, hoping that if one of them falls into a crevasse, yeah. the rest of them will be able to hold him up. Well, this uh, wide mustache will keep me quite yeah. warm. <laughs> <laughs> Real. But reading about him in my book about polar exploration, I found him to be very like a, an interesting and charismatic figure. He had this um, unfulfilled romance with an American heiress um, who they ended up not marrying, but like she was buried with a piece of jewelry that he gave her and he was buried with um, like her photograph or something like that. Like they they still had this connection for the rest of their lives and... Um, 
they were like thwarted by his brother and her father and it's all very sad and he was one so he started this village in Ethiopia because at the time Ethiopia was controlled by Italy and he wanted to do this experiment where he would create a, a community a village that would farm and have businesses and create like it would be this thriving community that then Italy would get materials from like they would ship cotton or you know mm -hmm. whatever from this region it also involved mapping uh, the source of a river and he was looking for like one more expedition he was getting older and this was like one a last score one. yeah <laughs> he was a he had a lot of wanderlust this guy <laughs> but he he had this like unique take because a lot of people would do these like company towns you know mm -hmm. and they were always like terrible because, mm -hmm. you know, you would have to shop at the company store and whatever. Mm -hmm. But he invited people to come and work there. He set up um, traditional bazaars and shops and used traditional houses rather than like European style houses and created a, an actual village that was culturally familiar to the people who were coming there to live and to work. Hmm. And he... Um, treated them well and like had benefits. He brought in doctors and had um, multiple churches. So he didn't just bring in like a Christian church for the Europeans living there, but had, you know, religious um, services available for Muslims and for anybody else who was living in this town. And it just thrived. Like it was a huge success. And um, when civil war broke out in Ethiopia, um, after he died, they sent his nephew to this town to, like, retrieve his his body and, like, bring it back to Italy because they were afraid it would be, you know, damaged or, you know, desecrated in some mm. way in this war. And he finally managed to get permission from Somali authorities, and he went to the town, and all of the villagers were like, please don't remove him. Like, he's, they thought of him as, like, almost their patron saint, and mm. they, you know, cared for his gravesite and all of that and so he ended up leaving the body there and oh that's cool he's just an interesting guy that people like universally seem to respect and he did all kinds of interesting explorey things you know did the north pole the himalayas he did um alaskan climbing some of the first um climbing to be done on giant mountains in alaska and uh, you know he was a diplomat and hmm. you know explored rivers in in uh, Africa and just through it all was kind of a chill, cool dude. <laughs> it seems like kind of a rarity among yeah. those types of yeah. like, I don't know, you, you hear about explorers or like captains of industry or whatever, and it often seems like they're at best ruthless, yeah. you know, and uncaring. Right. And so it's nice to hear about one who it's like, oh, He's a, good, a guy. good guy. <laughs> yeah. He had like lifelong friendships with his porters and like he had um, one of the first route finders that like mountaineers that he hired for one of his expeditions. They worked together for the rest of their lives yeah. and wrote letters to each other about farming when they were old men. And like, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I When I read about him in the first book, I was interested enough to like get this biography and I read the biography and I still like the guy. Nice. He's an interesting guy. It's always good when you go on that uh, expedition of that type and you're like, oh, let's see how this yeah. goes. And then you're like, oh, 
Whew. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> he was nice. Yeah. He was, a, he was capable. He was intelligent. He was jerk. not a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. Those are my four. All right. Well, I had Berserk. I had uh, Strange Matter, number six, Bad Circuits. Doesn't matter because you shouldn't read it. I did Goosebumps, volume one, Welcome to the Dead House. Um, this came out like when I, it was perfect timing for me because yeah. I was probably in like second grade-ish when Goosebumps was like popular. Yeah, that's a, that's just that's a sweet spot. I think that's the the place to be. Yeah. I have distinct memories of several of them, but uh, not Welcome to the Dead House. I don't. So I, I it showed up at the Ark, and I just bought it, and <laughs> was like, I'll read this, and did. Um, I guess the best thing I can say about the book it reminds me of Dracula, but I have to. That's a very qualified statement. Like that's the that's the quote you put on the cover. If you wanted to put a quote from me on the cover. Reminiscent of Dracula. But the way it's reminiscent of Dracula to me is the beginning of Dracula is like uh, Jonathan Harker, right, going to Dracula's castle. Yeah. And basically ignoring or talking himself out of 10,000 omens that like what you're – All the villagers are terrified of something. (laughs) Superstitious villagers. Exactly. (laughs) Or, you know, it's like, wow, there's an awful lot of wolves running around (laughs) and like – Stuff like that. That's the mountains. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, you know, and even to the point of like people directly telling him, you cannot go there. You don't go there. It would be very foolish to go there. Insist on going there. Here is a cross. Yeah. Don't take it off. Yeah. And it's like, you know, immediately before arriving, he's like, I'm in this carriage uh, driven by this guy whose face is covered and seemed to have supernatural strength who's driving the carriage around at unsafe speeds, chasing after blue flames that are popping up, you know, and he's kind of like, oh, whatever. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) And so Welcome to the Dead House reminded me of that because our main character is constantly talking herself out of things that you're like, whoop, 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 you know, like. (laughs) Do not ignore the red flag. Yeah. My favorite part, and this is a spoiler for a book, but I mean, like, whatever. A real old book. So, you know, at the end, it turns out, like, everyone in the town is bad and trying to do a bad thing, and the kids vanquish the evil and save their parents. Okay, so they moved to this house because the dad's uh, estranged great uncle willed them this house, which I was like, what are you doing? Like, there's a person you don't even know, and you're just going to move there. But then the dad was like... Uh, you know, if we move here, I can quit my job and don't have to work anymore because I don't have to make a mortgage payment. And I was like, all right, super relatable. (laughs) (laughs) I take back everything I said before this because if someone was like, you got to move to a house that your estranged uncle you've never heard of is like, come live here. And it's in like Dead Falls, Ohio or whatever. And it's a creepy Victorian house and stuff. And I'm like, Mm, you know what? When you said I didn't have to work anymore, I already packed. Like, yeah. <laughs> whatever. I'm actually on my way. <laughs> Is it like super haunted or, you know, like, <laughs> um, and, you know, is it like danger I could handle? I mean, you know, like I always felt like if it was a haunted Chucky doll, I could knock him around. Like, that's not a big deal. Is it just somebody knocking on the walls a lot? Yeah. Because little, I, can, I can ignore that. I'll put in my earbuds. Yeah. Little kids creeping around laughing in the night. That's fine. You know, like I could it's look, it's that or the real life horrors of work. So, you know, I can deal with it. But then so they're at the end, uh, everything is revealed and the family's leaving because they're like, all right, we can't stay here. And um, 
the girl sees a new family moving into the house with a real estate agent and stuff and just turns around and runs. And I was like, you're not going to warn this new family. And I'm like, here's what you do. I know it's not really going to work, but you just go up and you're like, look, I know I'm a preteen and you're not going to believe me, but I'm just going to tell you all these things that are happening because then when you start noticing them happening, you'll be like, oh, she was right. And so maybe this will give you enough early warning to decide to move out faster than we did. Yeah. You know, and like, I'll, I'll just tell you, everyone's going to tell you their names who live in the town and all their names are in graves in the graveyard. Just, you know, for some reason, they decided not to change their names as ghosts, nor in the graveyard. I don't know what the ghost procedure is for changing your name, but I think you just decide. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> anyway. Um, and then the other book I didn't talk about was Soichi by Junji Ito. Uh-huh. Junji Ito is like a Japanese horror uh, manga master. Yeah. If you have Netflix and you've seen it's tales of Japanese horror or something like that, tales of the macabre Japanese something. That's him. Those are based on stories he did. Um, Soichi is kind of a different book. It's a little goofier and it's a little more funny. Soichi is this kid who thinks he's a vampire and maybe does have some mystical powers, but is also uh, kind of a weirdo. Mm -hmm. And everybody is kind of fed up with his nonsense, <laughs> justifiably. And so he does various little, I would call them pranks, Ranging from harmless prank to intending to cause severe harm pranks. Um, and it's just, it's it's a different flavor. Mm -hmm. It's like normally the horror is just pretty horrifying. Yeah. And this is like a little sillier. It's like maybe a little closer to an Adam's family kind of feel. It's also funny because the rest of his family is totally normal. Yeah. And he's like this one weird kid. And his parents are just kind of like, ah, you know, that's just Soichi. <laughs> and his brother gets really fed up with it because he's like, I'm trying to study. And Soichi keeps screwing around and like <laughs> making voodoo dolls or whatever, you know, <laughs> and he's like annoyed. Um, all the And his classmates are annoyed by him. Everybody's kind of annoyed. So it's funny because he's like this mystical dark force, but the feeling he elicits is not terror, but annoyance. Yeah. <laughs> so I recommend it. It's I think it's fun. It's not to everyone's taste, but if you have room in your life for a horror that's also silly, if you're like an Evil Dead fan. Yeah, I was going to say horror comedy. Yeah. A plus. That's kind of that's kind of the vibe. Did he write Spiral? Yes. Okay, I've read him then. That's probably his biggest like series. Yeah. And he just does a lot of collections of short stories is where you'll see a lot of his stuff. Okay. Which I, they're great. Cool. They range from pretty good to great. And if I may take a moment to pitch something that I just got added to the library collection and I'm afraid people won't find it, but it's really, it's interesting. Sure. You mentioned Dracula. Yeah. We recently got in a volume called Dracula Daily. Okay. Um, and I remember this happening like back in real time. There was this guy on social media who was reading Dracula, but reading it in chronological order where he would read the, that day on, like, so if the letter was dated May 15th, he would read that on May 15th mm -hmm. and was, like, live-tweeting his reading of Dracula in this way. And it's recently been collected into a book, all reorganized so that it's in chronological order and with, in the margins, the tweets and memes that people were creating as they were following along. Oh, fun. And it's a really funny kind of cool way to experience Dracula and... 
it's getting shelved in fiction under Dracula, not Stoker, because it's not really that. It's not really Dracula. Right. It's like Dracula reformed. Heavily annotated or yeah. something. Well, yeah. annotated and also reformatted because it's okay. not even in the order that it was presented or written. All right. So I was going to mention it because I thought it was a fun and cool little book and it could easily get missed by those Dracula fanatics. Mm, so yeah. all you Stoker folks, um, take a detour to the Dracula section of fiction and take a look for Dracula Daily. If you're stoked about it. Uh, I see you, what you did yeah, there. Yeah, see? Yeah. Not the only one with jokes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we better get out of here. Yeah. But uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Good times. And uh, I'll start next time. Okay. Well, Will we remember? No. But I'm trying to by saying this right now. Okay. Cementing it.